Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelock, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendrath, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. How do we make sense of what others do to us and what we do to others when our actions seem harmful or helpful? Attribution theory and locus of control. In 1958, psychologist Fritz Heider originated attribution theory in psychology. This theory tried to answer the question, how do people make sense of what happens to them? How do they hold themselves and others responsible or not responsible without knowing the actual causes or evidence for behavior? A related theory developed by psychologist Julian Rotter in 1954 is called locus of control and looks at how we reason about our own and others' motivations. In this podcast, we'll discuss the ways we all tend to credit or blame or shame ourselves and others when we judge actions or behaviors as intentional. Do we attribute harmful actions to character or personality traits, such as, he's such a narcissist and that's why he never asks about my ideas, or to circumstances like, No wonder she told a lie. She could not possibly deal with her financial situation. The way we explain our own and others' intentions plays a major role in our hostilities, judgments, and life satisfactions. As we move through this conversation, we'll also talk about the Zen story of the empty rowboat, which looks at attribution, control, and blame in a fresh way. Hi, Jill. Hi, Polly. (laughs) Nice to be here with you after I've just come back from a wonderful weekend teaching Real Dialogue, where we talked about some of these kinds of things. And that's one reason why I'm really happy to be talking today about attribution theory and locus of control, two theories that were a part of my graduate education, but somehow have faded into the background of psychology they, they come from social psychology, mm-hmm. and they're, they're the kinds of theories that I think give us some pretty good tips for living, you know, that are kind of practical, and you can see pretty quickly what the theory is getting at. I think I'd like to talk first about attribution theory and then about locus of control. You know, as I'm talking with you, stop me along the way or ask questions or make comments. Yeah, I'm excited to explore that with you. What brought it to mind from this weekend was the the ways that people can create a, a narrative about a family member that basically blames the family member for having a certain kind of 
character or say like being a narcissist or being an alcoholic that seems to attribute almost intentionality Mm -hmm. to that person's habits or conditions, whereas they wouldn't blame a family member for having polio or breaking their leg unless they were doing something that that person thought might have been too risky. And so the ways that we can feel compassionate and caring for people where we think bad stuff happened to them Mm -hmm. versus feeling judgmental and accusatory, Mm -hmm. blaming, and maybe even then punishing, and I don't mean legally punishing, I mean interpersonally punishing, Mm -hmm. someone that we assume is responsible for some kind of badness like a personality or something. Right, right. Do you think that happens when the behaviors of the person who's having particular personality traits attributed to them, do you think that happens when we feel impacted negatively primarily by this person? Well, I think it happens when we feel impacted negatively and when we feel impacted positively. So let's talk about the negative first because as we've pointed out many, many times, Human beings remember bad things more than they remember good things. And they look into what's negative and missing much more than they look into what's present. So on the harmful negative side, you know, when when I learned attribution theory, this example was given, so I'm going to use it because it comes to mind. If you walk under a tree and a big branch, like a, a heavy branch falls on your head and you get hurt by that, you actually will have pain, but you won't be angry at the tree. Mm-hmm. But if you walk under a tree and the same heavy branch falls on your head and you see a person up there, you're likely to blame the person because you think that that person might have had something to do with hitting you on the head mm-hmm. with a branch. Mm-hmm. And so then you have the pain and you have the anger. Mm-hmm. So you have a much more agitated mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy for us to think about this because if we think that somebody intentionally hurt us, lied to us, blamed us when we really weren't you know, actually responsible for something, mm-hmm. we feel a pain that might be the hurt of it, mm-hmm. but then we also feel an anger. Mm-hmm. We feel unfairly treated, and we want in some way to get justice, mm-hmm. you know, to, to say, I'm going to get some justice for this. So we go more towards judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that idea that somebody else intends or is responsible for your pain and suffering mm-hmm. is at the root of a lot of hostility and a lot of human hostilities. Now, in other podcasts, we've talked about projection right. and projective identification. Right. And so, you know, sometimes that's a result of projection. And mm-hmm. in fact, you are the person who's actually lying, but you assume it's the other person who's mm-hmm. doing it to you. Or you're the person who feels angry, but you look at the other person and you say, well, you must be angry at me. So that's a different way of looking at this issue of blaming somebody who is really not responsible for your suffering. Mm -hmm. But attribution theory looks at it in a more general way because when I was at graduate school, which was the late 70s, early 80s, 
there was a lot of, uh, at least where I went to Washington University for my PhD in psychology, there was a lot of concern to investigate something that was called personal causation, or sometimes it is called human causation. And what that was, was looking at humans as agents Mm -hmm. so that humans aren't just passive consumers of life, but that they create life and they create circumstances. And so then they're responsible for causing things. And that's different from natural causes. Mm-hmm. You know, those are, and so then, and, and obviously human beings do cause things, or let's say some people would argue that we don't. And I, I we, did a, we did a podcast on free will. I, I have a kind of a, a line in my own thinking, which is like this. I do think that most of the things that take place in our lives are out of our control. In other words, the, uh, there are these circumstances and causes, causes and conditions, as mm-hmm. the Buddhists say, mm-hmm. that we find ourselves in. It's not like we invented those or we rule those or we run those. And most of the time, that's what's happening. However, we do have intentions and intentional actions. And so we really can't boil everything down to the devil made me do that. You know, right. it's, it's like we, we are responsible for the things that we say within reason. I mean, sometimes something pops out and we have to look at it after it popped out. Mm-hmm. But most of the time we're held responsible for the things that we say and for our immediate actions. You know, like if, if I trip you, if I stick out my foot and trip you, mm-hmm. I'm responsible for you tripping. Right, and there was intention there. There was intention there, and um, and you know there is there are intentions to help people, there are intentions to hurt people, and even those are complex because often when we have the intention to help, many times it goes awry because we're trying to take control of the other person rather than actually help. But be that as it may, that's a whole other conversation right. which we've had a lot of here. But the idea that you intentionally do things, I believe is a good idea for humans because Mm -hmm. I think that we can decide to do something, set a goal, Mm -hmm. and reach it. Otherwise, we could never learn in the way we learn. Like, you know, if you've never built a house, you can learn how to build a house. And that means that's a little more than causes and conditions. You intentionally decide to learn how to pound an alien or whatever. So, you know, given these differences in humans, mm-hmm. that is that they that they do some things intentionally, they do some things accidentally, that there are causes and conditions they're embedded in that they don't control. Right. And then there are also things that they do control in an immediate way. Mm-hmm. It makes it complicated right. for us to figure out right. what's going on around us, particularly interpersonally. Yes. Yes. And and it makes me wonder about what do you do then with the hostility, with the anger that arises when another person's actions, which have affected you, if hostility is arising, presumably negatively, when their intention for harm was clear. For example, a really good friend of mine, we talk about getting hit on the head, a really good friend of mine was walking in Harvard Square in Boston and a guy came up behind her and hit her on the head with what they think was probably a fallen tree branch and stole her purse and her phone. Mm-hmm. So the tree branch example just brought wow. me right back 
to that. And it was really clear Mm -hmm. what his intention Mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. I mean, his, his intention was to get her material possessions. It was not to end her up in the emergency room. Or right? so it or, seems. Or so it seems. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We don't, don't really know. The know. Guy. So that was a really good example of attribution. Yep. Well, you just did. Okay. Do you so, see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you don't know the person. You right. didn't. You were telling the story. Right. But you said his intentions were clearly right. not to land her in the hospital, but to get her money. Uh-huh. And that's actually not clear. Well, it's just an attribution yes, that you're yes. making. Yeah. Like, so there, there are a lot of ways to spin a story like that. Mm-hmm. But the way you did it is a typical mm-hmm. way that we do it. Mm-hmm. In other words, we hear some sort of setup and we assume intentionality. Mm-hmm. And we assume that the person intentionally harmed the other person. Mm-hmm. Now, if you knew that this man was taking care of of a sick mother mm-hmm. and didn't have the money mm-hmm. to buy her the medications and he needed money quickly and he didn't have a gun and he didn't have any means of getting the money and so he grabbed a crude weapon like a branch and he hit somebody not to really hurt them but just to get enough money mm-hmm. to buy the medicine for his mother mm-hmm. to help her mm-hmm. then all of the attributions about his actions change. Mm-hmm. And probably your attitude would change towards him as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's no longer intending to harm somebody. He's intending to help somebody. Mm-hmm. And he's doing that by doing the least harmful thing that he could do to get the money. Do you see how that oh, changes yeah, yeah, yeah. the of whole course. story? Of course. And so, course. but nine times out of ten, we humans do the thing that you did this is what he did to her and he meant to do it you know in other words what we do we are very very quick to attribute intentionality particularly if it's a harmful action right i the his intention to render her into a state where he could take her material possessions I mean, that was the action. I don't know what his intention That's right. was. That's right. That was the action. Right. But it seems easy to explain the intention because there was an outcome right. of that action. Right. But again, you know... I can't know if he was intending to hurt her or not. And I can't know what his motivation right. was. Or maybe, you know, because again, I've seen a lot of the experiments in social psychology right. where they'll tell a story and ask people, you know, what... What was the person's intentions? Right. And, you know, nine times out of ten, in a story like the one you told, people would say, you know, what you said, to take her money and not to harm her too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but he hurt her. You right. Know? And, he, right. and so he's responsible for that. Right. Right. And, of course, he is responsible for that. But if the other story were the case, mm-hmm. that he quickly had to get money, he didn't want to harm someone too much, even under the law, we would regard it differently. Mm-hmm. Because we would see that his intention really wasn't to hurt this person, but to help his mother. And this was that he was desperate. He didn't have a gun and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to really kind of illustrate, and that was a great illustration really, mm-hmm. is that we tend to regard people as harming us when the outcomes are negative. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
I, I heard a story on the weekend where, um, you know, it was a, a woman whose mother was dying and she brought her two sisters or her two sisters came so that, to the mother's bedside. And, and the one sister was characterized as just so much trouble, an alcoholic who just does make such a mess of everything has always been so much trouble for everyone and now posts on her Facebook page sort of bragging that she's visiting her mother while her mother's dying and taking care of her mother. And this combination of being an alcoholic and bragging about caring for the mother and being so much trouble was, was just kind of incensing not necessarily the speaker because the speaker was talking about it in sensing her other sister, mm-hmm. not herself. But, you know, I said something like, that sounds tough because all three of you are losing your mother. And, you know, I didn't even know how to say it because I don't know if that sister is drinking too much or somebody's exaggerating her behavior. Or I don't know anything except right. a story. Right, right. So I say something like, well, maybe the sister that you think is drinking too much is drinking to medicate herself because things are... Anyway, this woman sort of snapped at me. I did not know the woman, and later we had a longer discussion about it, but in that moment, she was just like, no, this is the way this person is. You know, this person has ruined her life. She's had all sorts of possibilities, and she's just ruined her life, and she goes on ruining her life. That is a heavy attribution, Mm -hmm. and yet that is extremely common. Mm-hmm. extremely common mm-hmm. and so you know as we've talked about it in other podcasts the causes and conditions of somebody's whole life are not mm-hmm. under their control right and yet if we take a certain kind of story and we say something about alcoholic drug addict narcissism those are the ones these days that I feel are going, you know, I mean, if you say even borderline personality, people give you a break a little bit more, you know, because that seems more situational Mm -hmm. than it does intentional. Mm -hmm. So, but that attribution of intentionality to somebody else's behavior Mm -hmm. leads to hostility towards that person, which obviously will further burden the person mm-hmm. and the relationship and the relationship yeah and so the idea that you know for a long time we felt this way also about overeating mm-hmm. you know now people are kind of lightening up on overeating mm-hmm. you know like uh, somebody was responsible for their weight because that that was a result of overeating now we know there are different body types different kinds of metabolism causes and conditions and it's not the intentionality of the person and so now we don't attribute so much negativity right to weight right right i think you can i mean i think you can you can quickly roll back just about any situation to a place where you start to see that it is a situation that is where everyone is co-arising yes. and all everything that has happened until that moment is leading to that that action or that situation or that activity you begin to see that that you know yes we're responsible for what we say we are responsible for what we do but even then it could be that 
let's just say, in the case of the hitting over the head with a branch, that this individual chooses what might seem like the least harmful action to achieve a goal that was admirable, mm-hmm. you know. I mm-hmm. mean, that could be the mm-hmm. case. Right. Probably wasn't, but it could be. Right. Um, right. But and, that, and you can't know. You either. cannot know. And so that's why the attribution is so powerful. Yeah. The thing that you attribute, it really behooves us to be careful about attributions unless we're actually on the scene and we actually hear so, so the person say something or we watch the person do it mm-hmm. and we may not know the motivations for that, but then we know that that person literally did that and literally said that, we might be able to inquire mm-hmm. of the person, mm-hmm. well, you know, what was going on there? Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? But apart from that, the attribution is probably not a good move to make. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, again, that's... So you're what, saying that it's generally unuseful? I would say it's generally going to be... So we're talking about harmful right. actions now, right, you right. know, because I'm going to talk about a helpful in a minute. But okay. when it comes to harmful actions, that attribution is going to mostly increase hostilities and increase also... Um, the desire to break off a relationship mm-hmm. or to see the other person as um, an enemy mm-hmm. or a problem or to blame mm-hmm. for something. Mm-hmm. When the causes and conditions surrounding whatever the person is doing might be very much more complex mm-hmm. than the individual who's making the attribution. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when it comes to attributions about harmful and hurtful actions, we should be very, very careful in making those if we're not present when that thing takes place. And when it comes to something like habits, like, you know, drinking or, I mean, alcoholic drinking or um, other kinds of addictions, the causes and conditions that go into those habits are complex. And by the time the person has actually developed a habit, it is then, it's hard to, to stop it. I mean, it's it's like I often say to people, cigarette smoking has a high reward. Everybody who smokes cigarettes is aware that there's a tremendous risk. But the, the people that are smoking have um, a kind of risk assessment. They, they believe that the benefits that they experience from smoking cigarettes, nicotine, out weigh the risks or they manage the risks Mm -hmm. because they like the effects. Mm -hmm. And yet when other people see that, they'll often attribute something like stupidity or just, I don't know, stupidity usually, you know, like why is that person doing that? Right, right. And of course, that person has a reason to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's a serious matter to that person. Mm -hmm. It's not a trivial matter. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things like this where mm-hmm. we attribute, mm-hmm. you know, bad motives mm-hmm. to people who are in complex circumstances. We don't know their circumstances. Usually when we ourselves feel like we're being negatively impacted by their behavior. Th- that's right. Where we feel like we've been harmed or somebody else has been harmed. Or right. we just think that's bad to do that. Like it's bad to drink sugary drinks. Why do people drink sugary drinks? Right. Well, what I would say is most people drinking them, they already know 
quite a bit about mm-hmm. the problems, mm-hmm. but they've decided that the benefits or the pleasures outweigh the risks to them. Mm-hmm. And that is probably because they don't have other kinds of pleasures available to them. Mm-hmm. And so that the people that are critiquing their behavior from the point of view of attributing stupidity to it or or something else, mm-hmm. those people probably have other pleasures. They're, they're probably not drinking the sugary drinks because you know, they know how to do cross-country skiing or something. They don't, right, right, they don't right. do sugary drinks for their main pleasure. Right. But once you start to see this and to see how attribution works and to see that as human beings, it is true that we are causal agents. I mean, we can do things and, um, and we can't intend to do something and do it. And that looks a little different from the dog. You know, mm-hmm. we we don't, I mean, we could see that the dog wants to chase the squirrel because we see it in the dog's face and the dog's mm-hmm. emotions. But we don't have the idea that the dog is saying, I'd like to kill that squirrel. Just, <laughs> you know, just for its own purposes. You right, know, we, right. we could say, well, the dog has an instinct like that. So we forgive the dog. We forgive the dog a lot of its harmful qualities, but we don't forgive our sister for that. Right. You know, we, we, right. we think the sister has it under her control. So that kind of attribution of really troubling intentions mm-hmm. to somebody when we see them acting in a certain way mm-hmm. is something that really needs to be looked at, mm-hmm. you know, if we're thinking about reducing hostilities between us. Mm-hmm. Then there's the attribution of helpful or let's say, generous or, um, you know, wonderful mm-hmm. <laughs> actions. Mostly when we attribute real goodness and generosity, that is useful because then we can feel grateful towards that person. But sometimes what happens is that we, we attribute very good intentions to some individuals that we have elevated idealized. And, and idealized yeah. and then we cannot imagine that they might not have completely good intentions and I think of Gandhi here mm-hmm. because Gandhi Gandhi did believe in the caste system and he was a racist when he was in South Africa and he's still Gandhi I mean he still did some really wonderful things. Mm -hmm. But we would tend to, I think, if we hear, oh, Mahatma Gandhi said that, we would do our best to hear it as though it's a good thing, Mm -hmm. whatever he said. Mm -hmm. Mm Because again, we're we're attributing motives and intentions to him. Right. No matter the behavior. Right. Because that's Gandhi. Right. You know? Right. Or somebody does something good and and the outcome is positive and we attribute the intentionality to help when yeah. that may or may not exactly have exactly. been the motivating intention yeah there there are a lot of good stories like that when you can see that a person has done something that maybe simply made sense under the circumstances mm-hmm. I, I think there was a movie about this once but then it turns out mm-hmm. that that action you know, ends up being very beneficial mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So then the attribution of intentionality mm-hmm. comes back to that person. 
that the person, you know, intended that. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing somebody interviewed who, in some situations, saved somebody's life. It was like, I think, you know, they jumped into, they saw someone drowning and jumped into the lake. And the attribution was, this was so heroic, et cetera, et cetera. And the person said, no, it was like, it was like, it was like a reaction. It was like, you know, they saw this and they did it. And afterwards even thought that it was probably not a great idea. Mm-hmm. because it, it could have gone really wrong, right? and it didn't. But it wasn't as though the person that was jumping into the lake was saying, I really want to save this person. It was just like a reaction. A person is drowning, you jump in, and then later you think, whoa, both of us could have drowned, right. or you know, I could have found help in some other way mm-hmm. other than doing that. So again, the issue is the attribution, right. but most of the time the attributions in most people's lives are the attributions that are negative, Mm -hmm. not the attributions that Mm -hmm. are positive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, before we go into the empty rowboat story, which we both know and love, I do want to talk a little bit about locus of control because it kind of interacts with the same Mm -hmm. idea of attribution theory, but more from the point of view of our own agency or our own autonomy, the way we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. Again, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast that, you know, in the development of of a human being, in the early period of development from from inner uterine to until about 18 months, there's not a strong separation between inside and outside. Things are kind of a jumble and confusing and it's not clear what's coming from where. So that something coming from the outside could seem like it's coming from the inside of the body and so on and so forth. And around 18 months to two years, that's when these self-conscious emotions come into play and people then begin to experience themselves as inside of a body, a toddler does, you know, and with the world outside. And then the toddler develops this I, me, mine, no, you know, I do it myself, no, 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 me, 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 and practices that until there is something that we call a self or an ego that seems to be inside of the body. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, that that being starts to compare itself to the others. Do I, you know, am I as good, as fast, as smart, as pretty as this or that as the others are and those self-conscious emotions like jealousy and envy and um, embarrassment and guilt and self-pity and so on they motivate us to do these two things to protect ourselves and promote ourselves and then we go out there and we start doing stuff to protect ourselves and promote ourselves and we have the idea then that we can get stuff for ourselves we don't have to depend on others up until that time And for different people, that time occurs a little differently. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, chronologically, developmentally, you begin to really get a sense of how this happens between the age of six and seven. But some kids don't, you know. It depends a bit on their circumstances, but developmentally, you can. So you begin to consider yourself an independent agent, so to speak, Right. you know. And then you, you also will start to have a feeling like you're an individual and that you have an, an identity. That doesn't develop fully until you're about 14 where you really start to feel that strongly. But 
And these are necessary milestones in human. Absolutely, if you're gonna if you're gonna be you know normal, we call normal, mm-hmm. which means that you functioning that you can govern your own life right. and you can go out into the world on your own when leave your parents and so on. Right. So the more that you have that sense that you can do things, the more you are likely, frankly, to be more successful in life. You know mm-hmm. to be able to get stuff, basically. And um, as um, as sometimes it's called, you know, you have survival fitness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, But people develop this to one degree or the other. And again, again their circumstances really contribute a lot to mm-hmm. whether... So, you know, for example, if you've tried and tried and tried to get good grades or something in school and then then it just never seems to work out eventually you kind of give up and you just think well you know other people can get good grades but i can't and usually you'll think it's because you're stupid and then you might also think it's because your parents are stupid too or the you know um but let's say some people grow up and at the end of that growing up time when they go out into the world, they feel pretty much like they are agents in their own lives and that they have what's called an internal locus of control, that they can, that they have a central office, you know, an operating center where there is like a planning room and you can plan what you want and you can go and get it and then you hold yourself responsible also. Kind of like the movie Inside Out. Yeah. Picturing the planning room. That's right. Like the planning room. And then you you hold yourself responsible for that Mm -hmm. control. Now, when you have a strong internal locus of control, the big mistake you make is that you think you have things under your control. That you believe the control room actually controls things. And really... Not just yourself. Yeah. It really doesn't. Even with yourself, it's, you know, 99 percent of the time we're pretty unconscious even when we feel like agents in our own lives so it's an illusion to think you're really in control of your life but on the other hand you're likely to be more successful if you feel like you're an agent and you Mm -hmm. feel you can do things Mm -hmm. and you can plan them and you can set them up and you can carry them out right you know and you can do that pretty effectively and so that's so there's a kind of middle ground between developing a sense of agency Mm-hmm. And, and an ability to move forward and believing that that you both are really in control of yourself and to some extent in control of the world around you. Well, you know, the issue really is more like whether you have an internal or an external. We haven't talked about the external locus of control. There, The extreme is going to get you into trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you feel like you're an agent in your own life and you can do things and plan things and you're effective as having that agency the extreme of it is that you believe then you're responsible for your whole life you know Mm -hmm. that if you you look back at your life and you think well you know if if I hadn't married so-and-so you know my whole life would have been better Mm -hmm. (laughs) because because I married him and because that's what I chose now that was my bed and I made it and I have to live it. And that isn't the way life is. Right. You know, like you right. make choices, mm-hmm. but you don't control the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many circumstances that have, that come in to anybody's life. You can have an accident, you can receive, uh, you know, a gift, you can um, have an illness. I mean, there are just many things that change your life's course. It's not that you 
actually design everything, choose everything, and make right. it turn out the way that it turned out. The other thing that people do with that is they project forward. If I get this job, right, if then I'll I, be. Right, then I'll be. Yeah, then I'll be happy. Then, happy, I'll, be then I'll be at peace yeah. or whatever. Satisfied. Right, or then I'll be able right. to. Yeah. So all of that is a real mistake on having an internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. You have more chance again of having certain kinds of success in life. So the other, the other, let's say, outcome of growing up is that you have an external locus of control. And when you have that, it's like you think the powers are outside of yourself, mm-hmm. whether they are authority figures who determine everything, like they always do these things to us, and they are in control of the banks, and they are in control of the money. And so on one hand, you have that, like the authority is outside of yourself, but you also have this sense that you really cannot really affect a lot of change in your life, that the circumstances are set in such a way that you, you're you a little bit more like a baby. You need to be cared for. You need somebody else to handle the details. You need somebody else to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. Because, Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Right, because you're not really in charge. So on one hand, there's a wisdom in that because you're not, you know, you, you don't, you don't really decide how your life is going to turn out. On a philosophical Right, level, right. Yeah. And that can lead to, you know, more of a sense of, I don't know, being modest about yourself, mm-hmm. you know, like you're just, you know, a person, you're not, you know, some big mover and shaker. The other side of that, the extreme side though, is that then you don't feel you can help yourself. And so if there's something wrong in your life or you've ended up in some situation, you just sort of give up and say, there's nothing I can do about that. Right. Those are my circumstances. Right. And I really can't change those circumstances. Right. And so again, the, the attribution there of intentionality, like what actually can, is, is outside of yourself. It's like mm-hmm. only others can do these things. Mm-hmm. And the other case of the internal locus of control, the attribution is internal. Mm -hmm. I can intend things and make them happen. So those are two sort of different styles. They make a big difference to how people see themselves and how they manage their lives and Mm -hmm. so on. And they kind of fit with the, um, the attribution theory about the way we look at other people's actions and what we think are their intentions and how we respond to them. And so... When you put these these two together, a big issue for humans is that we can blame ourselves or blame others. We can shame ourselves or shame others for intentional actions that were never intentional in the first place mm-hmm. because there were a lot of causes and conditions right. that either contributed to our great good luck in being able to accomplish this great thing or contributed to a situation in which you know, we've been, we're forced to act in a certain way to help somebody. And so that the complexity of our own situation in regard to intentions leaves us with, we, I want to do the empty robot story because yeah. it really does, in reality, leave us in a situation where we should ramp down the blame, mm-hmm. ramp down the shame. And attribution. And yeah. the attributions yeah, yeah. because it's, there's, there's, so many circumstances in fact most of the time you know we don't really know what we're doing 
And when we do intend to act, we're acting on a stage where there were so many other influences. Right, right. Do you want to tell the story of the empty rowboat? Do you, do you remember I, the story? Yeah, I mean, I you can cut in if the version that you know is different, but the story, the way I was taught it, was that there was a, a gentleman who was on a lake or going down a river in a rowboat, and uh, it's pretty foggy out it's it's a little bit inclement but anyway there's a ship all of a sudden he looks up and he sees a ship coming at him a boat that's a lot bigger than his little rowboat is and um he starts shouting at this bigger boat which he can see from the speed that the boat is moving is likely going to hit him and he can't seem to steer his rowboat more quickly enough out of the path of it and he's shouting and he has a little lantern and he's flashing the lantern and as the ship is coming closer and closer he's getting more and more irate and in fact the ship does hit his rowboat and sink it and he manages to swim to the surface and board the ship that hit him and at this point he's enraged he's irate and he goes looking for the captain who he in various versions yeah he (laughs) wants to blame at the very least and let him know the horrible harm he's done to this man. And he walks around and at some point realizes that there is nobody on the boat. That what the understanding is that perhaps the boat was tied to a mooring and got free, but and just floated downriver. So there was no intentionality. No one to blame. No one to blame. No one to blame. It, that, you told it a little differently than I learned it, but it's the same. It's the same gist of it. So I, I learned it's like a boat and somebody's rowing fast across mm-hmm. the lake because mm-hmm. he's trying to get somewhere, like to meet a friend for lunch. And, um, and the lake's completely clear when he, when he starts rowing. And at some point, another boat just bangs into him. And, and he's, he's like outraged because the, the whole lake was empty. And what, what is this boat, you know, banging into him? And he reels around to, to confront the person and the boat is empty. Right. And then he has this tremendous relief. Right. Just because the boat is empty, even though he's still been inconvenienced. Right. Right. There's no one to blame. There's no one to blame. So there's right. nothing happening that's intentional. And so it's it's that the situation is still troubling, problematic, harmful, hurtful, or whatever. Right. But there's no intentional right. harm. Right. So my, my feeling is that if you're doing a, a spiritual practice seriously or you, you go through a good psychotherapy, you start to see that that's the way the world is, that, that we're all these empty rowboats crashing into each other. Right. And it's not like somebody's intending to take your life down, but that... So, you know, I mean, one way to look at this... Uh, somebody in a therapy with me some time ago you know, found out that her mother, her mother actually had not been able to take care of her at birth. And um, the courts had decided that her mother, who had a postpartum psychosis, had to be separated from her. And, um, and the mother, as this person remembered it, had behaved really irresponsibly, had taken drugs, and, and been unable to seem to be responsible for her baby. And so she was separated from this mother. Eventually, she got to know her mother. 
And in adulthood, she came to find out that, so she was separated from her mother for the whole childhood, that her mother was actually born in Poland in the woods during the Holocaust, that her mother's parents were fleeing. And so her mother was literally born while they were fleeing in the woods. And suddenly this person recognized that her mother didn't have the skills to be a mother and had been traumatized in her own birth. And then, you know, the person said, all my life I've blamed my mother for my problems. And now I wonder, like, who should I blame? Should I blame the Nazis or should I blame the conditions that brought the Nazis about? And that is really the no blame. You start to see everything contextualized in all of these conditions that nobody is really responsible for. And so there's no blame, which is a kind of relief because then you don't have to find your enemy and hunt your enemy down. Right. You know, it's it's not like that. And of course, that doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our actions or what right. we say. Right, and we, that there isn't are. intention. In, right, in, that's right. Yeah. But it's not on that level of drama right. that we often feel it is. Like, you know, this person ruined her life right. because she did this or that. Or this person is responsible for all my misery. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. It's not possible that it could even be like that because these conditions aren't under our control. Right. So the empty rowboat, I think, teaches that story. And it's I think attribution theory clarifies how important it is to look at your attributions. Like when you are saying this person's at fault for ruining her life or for right. ruining my life. Right. You know, think about what you're doing there. You know know what's a great example of that? Mm. I just saw the movie Doubt. Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful movie. It's a wonderful movie, movie. and it's a great example of that. Because you, in the end, don't know. You don't know. You don't know. And And she finally has to admit that she doesn't know. And she was attributing to him. Very deeply. Yeah, right. So the don't know is also the Zen mind is the don't know mind. And yet many people who practice Zen don't necessarily take that (laughs) to the no blame situation, you know? So yes, all of these situations when we can see, like in the movie, Doubt, Mm. that there are these complex conditions and that no one is to blame, there's a tremendous relief. Right. And that to me is one of the freedoms that we have as human beings. We can see things in a more complex way. Yes. I think that, that to some extent, blaming provides a temporary relief, right? Blaming, blaming, I think, links a little bit to control. Well, it's more, I think what it does is it makes us feel better about ourselves because I don't think it's really a relief because then you have to go after Oh, that's true. The person who's to blame, or you yeah. have to always remember to, you know, attack that person in your mind or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no end to that, mm-hmm. you know. But the the temporary relief is that it's not your fault, right? So I think this is a good place to end. I do and... too. Thank you so much. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. 
Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane. 